I'm going to begin by reading the first 13, the first 14 verses. It says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for the heads, for their judges, for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Sair to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you. And the Egyptians brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwell on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the, the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you also. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Pepsilites. No, the Pepsilites aren't in the text. I just wanted to see if you were paying attention. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him, in sincerity and in truth, put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Joshua began his farewell address in chapter 23. He reminded the children of Israel, remember in the last chapter, what the Lord had done in verses 1 through 5 and then again in verses 9 through 10. The impressive victories that God had given them over their enemies. Then Joshua reminded them of what Israel must do. Obey the Lord in 23.6. Separate from the pagan peoples in verse 7. Be faithful to the Lord in verse 8. And then the warning of the disastrous consequences of disobedience in verses 12 through 16. But now Joshua is going to give a final address. His final sermon, if you will. 
It, he, it begins with a call by God himself in verses 1 and 2. It then continues with a call, please remember the history of your redemption and salvation. <laughs> In verses 2 through 13. And then he makes a call. He says, please decide for the Lord in verses 14 through 18. And then there's a call to heed the warnings of judgment in verses 19 through 24. And then after renewing the covenant, he calls them to memorialize the commitment. He basically says to them, you should always remember what the Lord has done in your life and don't forget it in verses 25 through 28. And the chapter ends the way that all men end, in death. Joshua gives a summary of the people's history. In the days of Abraham in verses 1 through 4. In the days of Moses in verses 5 through 10. In the days of Joshua in verses 11 through 13. And then Joshua reminds Israel that he and his family, they have made the decision that they are going to serve the Lord. And what you may not comprehend when you're reading the text is Joshua is assuming that they won't. He isn't assuming that they will. He's assuming that they won't. He already knows how faint the human heart is, how weak the human condition is. In short, the chapter contains a summary of Israel's history in verses 1 through 24, then a symbol in verses 25 through 28 to remind the nation, and then the chapter ends with the death of Joshua. And reminding of the death of Joseph and Eleazar the priest in verses 29 through 33. The burial of the bones of Joseph at Shechem in verse 32. The key concept in the chapter is going to be found in Joshua's use of the term serve. The people of Israel are called to serve the Lord. The expression serve the Lord or serve him is found nine times in the chapter and you should note it. Verse 14, verse 15, verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, verse 24. But the quality of our service will forever remain and depend on the condition of your heart. It's one thing to say, serve the Lord, but it becomes an impossibility unless you're willing to evaluate the circumstances of your life and the condition of your heart. Joshua reminds us that salvation is the basis or the foundation of God's work for service. And some of you, as you read the Old Testament, you might ask the question that I asked long ago, how much of grace and mercy did the people in the Old Testament understand? Did they understand about grace? Did they understand about God's unmerited favor? Did they understand it? And of course, the answer is yes. Joshua is going to remind them that salvation is the basis of service, that God saves Israel out of 
bitter slavery, preserves them in the wilderness, gives them a land, defeats their enemies, and as a consequence of these things, they ought to serve the Lord. The same principle applies to the believer in Jesus Christ. You see, Joshua is reminding them, God saved you to serve. In the New Testament, that is repeated. We don't serve to be saved. We serve because we're saved. We're saved and we serve in the most powerful passage that we're going to be looking at in the weeks and months ahead in Ephesians chapter 2, in the heart and soul of the future <laughs> Bible study that we're going to be embarking on is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You can probably tell I've been thinking a lot, not only about Joshua, but about Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, Paul writes, For by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. In verse 9 it says, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved to serve in the Old Testament. And we're saved to serve in the New Testament. We don't experience forgiveness. We have experienced forgiveness. And so we serve. In other words, we don't serve in order to experience God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. According to the Bible, we've already experienced God's grace and God's mercy and, and God's love in Christ. Remember what the reoccurring theme of this book has been. They are going to penetrate the land. They're going to occupy the land. And they're going to defeat their enemies. It becomes a type and a picture of you. For them, their inheritance is the land. For you, your inheritance is Jesus. You occupy Jesus. You occupy Genesis to Revelation. You occupy him in his love and his mercy and his, and, and his, his forgiveness. And in grace. And so it begins with what God has done. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves. Note, not simply to Joshua, but before the Lord. They're presenting themselves before the Lord. They're coming in a congregation of worship. Shechem, by the way, was the place where the Lord first promised the land of Abraham. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or you're unfamiliar with biblical geography, uh, I, I want you to think about where Jerusalem is. If you have access to a Bible or a map, and I didn't have them put one up, but if you, if you go from Jerusalem north in the hill country, in the land of Ephraim, Shechem is the place where the Lord promised the land to Abraham in Genesis 12, 6, and 7. This is the place where Jacob built an altar in Genesis 33, 20 and exhorted his own children. He said, you should put away your idols in Genesis 35, 1 through 4. The name Shechem means shoulder or back. 
It was located in the hill country of Ephraim. And so it, because of the sloping hill country, it looked like a head and shoulder. It was the first capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so it was built on the slope or the shoulder of Mount Ebal. It was a major crossroads in the land. This is the place where Jacob's children watched sheep. This is the place where Jacob asked Joseph, go find out where your brothers are. And this is the place where he found his brothers and they took him and they put him in a pit and they sold him into slavery. I can't wait to take you to Israel. If there is such a thing as sacred places, what I am going to do is I'm going to show you this place and I'm going to say, look, Put your hand on it. This is the place where this happened. This is the place where Joseph was betrayed, but it's also the place where Joseph would be buried next to his father. If you want to just peek ahead in the chapter at verse 24. But you know what happened at this place in the New Testament? This is the place where Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and he rests and he's weary and he's tired and he sits down and he meets a woman at the well. This place. This was a place for Joshua and the people of Israel that would have been filled with memories. Joshua was deeply deeply concerned that the people were going to slip away, that they were going to return to idolatry, that they were going to return to the worldview of their neighbors. The worship of idols was a huge and persistent problem with the children of Israel. For some reason, they couldn't shake the idols. And it would in their future, cost them their inheritance. In verse 22, it says, look, and Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, Terah was an idolater living in Mesopotamia, in what you and I would call modern Iraq dwelt on the other side of the river. In this text, when it's talking about dwelling on the other side of the river, it's not talking about the Jordan River, it's talking about the Euphrates River. Led throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Sire, or what you and I would call Jordan, or the modern state or area called Nabataea. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. 
brought the sea upon them, covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, 40 years. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And, I, and they fought with you, but I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. Most of you remember the story. Remember the song. Now, Balaam was a prophet about the time that Moses was coming through, and that every now and then God would speak to him and tell him what to say and do. He had a reputation in all of those parts of being on the side of power, but when Moses saw that the children were coming, he called them in his needy hour. So, Balaam then we went to the Jordan, came to Jericho. The men of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. This is a recounting of all of the enemies. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, cities which you did not build, or and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. So in short summary, Joshua gives a short summary of their history. Abraham was an idolater in Mesopotamia. God called Abraham, at that time Avram, for what reason? By grace. In all of the planet earth, just like before, prior to the blood flood, the, the, the Bible says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what was it about Abraham that he found grace? Tall, short, better, worse? No. God, by grace, for reasons that are hidden in the, in the heart and the character of God, took Abraham and decided I am going to save him by grace. Like I said, the other side of the river in verses 2 and 3 and, and also in verses 14 and 15 is a reference to the Euphrates River. So again, why in the world would God call him? Why in the word, word, world would God call you? Why would he set his love upon you? Why would he minister his grace to you? Why would he see you through time and space and eternity and say, I love you and by grace I'm going to call you and I'm going to draw you to myself and I'm going to prepare a way that you can't even imagine. I'm going to make a mechanism of salvation. God provided protection in the land of Egypt, and then deliverance from that land. He delivered them through a series of miracles. He led them and kept them and then provided for them. God defeated their enemies with a powerful miracle. They not only were released from Egypt, they crossed the Jordan, and then there were even more miracles over their enemies who occupied the land. What more? What more could God possibly have done? And so he calls them to remember what God has done. Just like you're being called to remember what God has done. 
that when you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, remember, remember what God has done, how he's called you and saved you. And so in verses 14 through 24, he talks about what Israel must do. In verse 14, it says, Now therefore, in light of what God has done, considering all that he has done now, therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Bob Dylan famously sang, you got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Joshua doesn't simply believe that the choice is between false gods and the true God. Remember what I said earlier, Joshua assumes that they're not going to serve the Lord, that they've already made their choice. And it doesn't matter what they've chosen. It doesn't matter what stupid, stupid choices that they make as they walk away from God or they walk into darkness or they walk into, into unhealthy circumstances. He's already made the choice. And you will have people in your life who will go, God's not for me. Jesus isn't for me. Church isn't for me. Bible study isn't for me. Is hell for you? Oh, I, no, I don't believe that God will send me to hell. I don't believe that. So you believe that there's no recompense whatsoever, that anyone is free to live whatever they want to live. Israel would serve some God. It would either be the pagan nation's gods or it would be the true God. It's going to be Jehovah God. People, human beings are incurably religious. And make no mistake about it, even your atheist friends still serve a God of their own fabrication. And almost certainly it's themselves. It's impossible for a human being not to worship because you're made in the image and the likeness of God. Dylan was absolutely right. You may be the ambassador of England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're still going to have to serve somebody. It's going to happen. Joshua says, as for me, note, and my house. Joshua's the head of his house. He's the leader of his house. He's the one who makes the decisions about what kind of a house it's going to be. Every Christian has to make that same choice. Every Christian mom, every Christian dad, every Christian grandma and grandpa, every Christian has to make the choice about what kind of a home they're going to have, whether they're going to have a Christ-centered home or they're going to have a parent-centered home or they're going to have a child-centered home. 
But Joshua's already made his choice. We're going to be a, a home that, whose focus is on the Lord. In his home, he is going to provide a, a godly example. He is going to serve the Lord. The word, by the way, look in verse 14. Now, therefore, the word therefore provides the incentive for service. In what sense? Again, I'm going to ask you to put your Bible student caps on. I want you to think about what you're reading. And I want you to think about it in its context. Therefore, he says, now therefore fear the Lord. And so what is he saying? He's saying, the Lord has said to his people, follow it again. I took your father Abraham, verse 3. I sent Jacob down to Egypt, verse 4. I sent Moses in verse 5. I brought your fathers out of Egypt in verse 6. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, verse 8. I destroyed your enemies, verses 8 and 9. I wouldn't listen to Balaam in verse 10. I sent the hornet before you in verse 12. I've given you a land that you never worked for, verse 13. This is the incentive for service. God called Abraham. God protected his offspring. God gave them a land. And what did they do? Nothing. N-O-T-H-I-N-G. See, this is what's interesting to me. When people look at the Old Testament and go, man, God's kind of harsh. No, God loves them. God acts in grace. God acts in mercy. Apart from anything. And so for you, many of you, sometimes you have the same stinking problem. You know, I wasn't a perfect person this week. I, get, I yelled at the kids. I guess I can't really expect God to give me anything. How did you come to that conclusion? Have I been such a poor teacher that I, that, that I haven't told you about grace? That God loves you? That God graciously loves you? He sent Jesus to die for you. He has saved you. He has filled you with his Holy Spirit. God's love, Paul said, constrains us. God's grace motivates us. God's salvation empowers us. His faithfulness provides the basis for our faithfulness. God doesn't act because you're a pill. Or withhold from acting because you're a jerk. God wants to graciously, wonderfully provide for you the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is the supernatural force that allows us to die to sin and to live for Jesus. And so when the Lord says, hey, die to yourself, live for Jesus, and you go, okay, that's exactly what I'm going to do. If salvation is the ground or the basis for salvation, then separation is the forerunner for service. Joshua is blunt. Joshua says, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Put them away. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. It's okay. Leave that behind. Well, you know, my dad taught me to worship money. It's okay. Leave money behind. Money can't save you. It will never save you. 
Well, my parents taught me this and that and this and that. But did they teach you to serve the Lord, to love him? So Joshua says, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. This is interesting to me. The vessels that God uses require that they be clean. And so he's basically saying, you are going to serve the Lord. But if you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to have to put away the idols. We put away the idols of love of this world. We put away the idols of the flesh, the pride of life, the worship of money instead of God, or looking for worth and affection from human companions or the applause of human beings. Remember, an idol is anything that comes between you and the Lord. That's what an idol is. An idol isn't just a stone statue or some pagan god. An idol is anything that comes between you and the Lord. It's okay to to love your husband. It's okay to love your wife. It's okay to love your children. It's okay to love your grandchildren. But they will never serve as substitutes. And so the Lord reserves the right to use us or not use us. But according to Joshua and according to the New Testament... Service begins in salvation and it continues in separation from sin and holiness. This is a word that's a scary word for many Christians because they think holiness is big hair and long dresses and no makeup. My pastor told me, he said, how do you feel about makeup? And Pastor Chuck would say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Amen. He, we cultivate holiness. Joshua says, fear the Lord, serve him. And note what it says, in sincerity and in truth. Sincerity and truth are essential for service. In the temple of Solomon, there were two twin towers, pillars called Jachin and Boaz in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 21. The name Jachin means he will establish. Boaz means in him is strength. God establishes. God is our strength. We cultivate reverence, sincerity, truth. They become the pillars that establish our heart and soul and life. We resist the world. We resist Satan. We resist the flesh. We remember that God has given us champions, which I've repeated repeatedly to you. The Father has overcome the world. Jesus has defeated Satan. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Three great enemies... Three great champions. And note, not sincerity alone, but sincerity with truth. Do you know why? Because it's possible to be sincerely wrong. Sincerity has to be connected with the truth. You know people who are sincere in their commitment 
as a Jehovah's Witness or as a Christian scientist or as a Mormon or as a philosophical atheist or as a person, whatever it is that their belief system, and they believe it with all their heart. But sincerity isn't the mechanism that will save you. Think about Joshua's charge. Salvation, sincerity, truth, and the singular aim, strength and service. Over and over and over again, Joshua brings the charge. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. And the Lord doesn't permit insincerity. He doesn't permit duplicity and dishonesty. Paul told the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do all, he says, do all to the glory of God. That's the divine call. But it's also the divine claim. We serve the Lord in our homes, in our business, in our work. We don't just simply serve the Lord when we come to church. We begin to serve the Lord in every area of our life, in schools, the workman in his shop, the artist in her studio. In verse 16, it says, so the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and did those great signs in our sight, preserved us in the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, listen, you can't serve the Lord, or you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. You're reading that and you're thinking... What's going on? What in the world is going on? They've repeated, not once, not twice, but three times. We want to serve the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. And Joshua says, you can't serve him because he's holy. Well, what does that mean? He's, Joshua's not saying they can't serve the Lord. Actually, what he's saying is, God is holy. A holy God requires a holy people. They can't serve God and false gods. What, what Joshua is saying is to the person who says, I want to be a Christian. I want to go to heaven. I want to have all of the benefits of having a right relationship with God, but I don't want to live like it's true. I want to hold on to my sin. I want to hold on to my wickedness. I want to hold on to my idolatry. Joshua does not believe what so many Christians believe today. So many Christians say, God understands that I'm a sinner. God knows that I'm a sinner. God knows who I am and what I am. And, and God accepts me just the way that I am. It's true that God will save you just the way that you are. But we're kidding ourselves. 
if we think that God, that the God of the Bible and the God of the New Testament is a God who says, I want Jesus and I want heaven, but I don't want to give up my sin. I, I, I want to continue to have a wrong relationship with my boyfriend or, or my girlfriend. I still want to take drugs. I still want to watch porn. I still want to have alcohol. Here's what I want. I want all of the benefits of being saved, but I don't want any of the responsibility that comes from serving the Lord. My friend Jack Phillips was on The View last week. He's the baker at Masterpiece Cake Shop. The people, the theologians on The View asked Jack, Jack, have you ever considered what Jesus would do? If homosexuals, if, if Jesus was a baker and homosexuals walked into his cake shop, what would Jesus do? Wouldn't Jesus, because he loves them, bake the cake for them? And Jack, in humility, with all sincerity and humility, just basically said, you know, the Bible has a standard about marriage. It's between one man and one woman. God's the one who invented marriage. He establishes what constitutes marriage. Idolatry was Israel's besetting sin. Joshua knew. He saw it in the wilderness. The people wanted to hold on to the gods of Egypt. They wanted to embrace the ones of the Amorites. They wanted to look into their distant past and follow what their ancestors did. But he knows that that's not an option. The reoccurring testimony of the scriptures is God is holy. The word is hagios. It means sacred. It means set apart. It means consecrated. In reference to God, it means that God is intrinsically, substantially holy. God isn't just holy because that's He's just a, a holy guy. He's holy in his intrinsic being. He's holy in his character. He's holy in his word. Everything about God breathes sanctity. God is holy in everything that he is. And so God must of necessity be holy in everything that he does. And God is incapable of acting apart from his holy nature. But the text then says... Because God is who he is and the way that he is, his servants and his people have to cultivate that character. I did a, a quick search. The Bible uses a number of illustrations to, to describe the character of his servants. Priests who serve in the temple, Hebrews 9.14. The slave in the house, Luke 17.8. The deacon in the church, Luke 22.26. The elder in the flock, Romans 1.9. The son in the family, Matthew 4.10. The maid in her home, Acts 12.13. The member of the body, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. When the Bible is talking about the character of servants, they're priests, they're slaves, they're servants, they're elders, they're sons and daughters, they're members of, of a body. And the Bible says that we being many are one body, we're joined and we're fitted together. You can't live an unholy life and not have it affect everybody around you. And so in verse 20, he says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he's going to turn 
and do you harm and consume you after he's done you good? What are you saying? Joshua warns them that if they forsake the Lord and they serve the foreign gods, there's consequences. God is not mocked. God is a just God. What a person sows, that also they will reap. And you read that if you forsake the Lord and serve the foreign gods, he'll turn and do you harm and consume you. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what am I reading? A good God does harm? Idolatry is an invitation to discipline. And so is sin. Sin is an invitation to discipline. That's what the New Testament says, that, that you are sons and daughters, and God disciplines every son and daughter. Idolatry is an invitation to discipline and chastening. For the Jews, it would result in the loss of their land. For the Christian, discipline doesn't involve the loss of a savior. You don't lose Jesus when you sin. The Bible says that you're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. You see, salvation establishes a relationship with God. Sin disconnects fellowship from God. We talked about this for those of you who were here when, when we were studying 1 John. And I ask you the question, do you understand the difference between fellowship and relationship? See, relationship is what you have by virtue of the fact of who you are. You have a relationship with your mom and your dad. You have a relationship with your children, your sons, your daughters, your grandchildren. By virtue of biology and genetics, you have relationship with your family. You have fellowship with your family when you talk with them, when you pray with them, when you laugh with them, when you cry with them, when you hug them, when you touch them, when you call them on the phone, and you don't have fellowship when you're disconnected from them. If you're not talking to your mother or your father, if you're not talking to your brother or your sister, if you're not talking to your son or your daughter, you no longer have fellowship with them. But you haven't lost relationship. Your mother is your mother. Your father is your father. Your children are your children. For the Christian who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says you've been begotten, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are lots of reasons why the believer should be holy. The first and chief reason is that God is holy. The second reason is because of everything that he's done for us. The third reason is because he commands it. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, he says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, are holy. It doesn't mean God is perfect, but it doesn't mean you're perfect. And when God uses it in relationship to you, he's talking about separate separate. I've used the illustration in my own home. I have lots of pots and pans to do lots of cooking, but I have one particular pot. It has only one function. It cooks my tea. This is my teapot. I brew my tea in this pot. 
This pot isn't for corn. It isn't for soup. It isn't for anything other than my tea. When one of my children use it for something other than tea, the wrath of their father comes down upon them. It is a holy pot. It is a sacred pot. It has one function, one function only. It is used for brewing the tea. It is forbidden to use it for anything else. See, when you actually begin to understand it that way and you go, you're holy. Well, in what sense? You belong to the Lord. You don't belong to Satan. You don't belong to Satan's minions. You are set apart. God has saved you. He loves you. You no longer are a part of that world that you left. And so there's another reason. The fourth reason is because of, again, God's relationship to us. He says, sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. Newberry, in the margin of his Bible, he renders this title, Jehovah Mekadoshem, Yahweh Kodeshem. This speaks, when, it, when the Bible uses that term, Yahweh, Jehovah, it speaks of a covenant relationship that is an enforceable contract. You see, God says, I have a covenant relationship with you. Um, imagine a person says to you, hello, husband, hello, wife. And you go, you're not my husband. You're not my wife. I have one wife. Her name's Mary. Or a person will come to me, will you marry me? I come, I'm already happily married. No, no, no. I, I mean, will you do the service? Oh, okay, that's different. God has a covenant relationship. When you have a covenant relationship, it is a, a relationship that's enforceable by contract. There are 10 different aspects which God reveals himself as Jehovah. Many of you are familiar. Jehovah Jireh. Uh, to provide for us, Jehovah Rapha, Rofeka, to heal us, Jehovah Nisi, to enable us to conquer, Jehovah Shalom, to calm us, um, to give us peace, Jehovah Sheboath, to lead us, Jehovah Rochai, to care for us, Jehovah Shammah, that is Jehovah who is with us, and Jehovah Mekadoshem. This is Jehovah who sets us apart, who separates us, who sanctifies us. Listen carefully. God isn't asking you to make yourself holy. He makes you holy. My teapot never said to me, can I be your teapot? And all of the teapots auditioned for the job of teapot. I go, no, this will be my teapot. This is the pot that I set aside for me. You are the vessel that God has set apart for himself. So the Bible gives a few more reasons for holiness. He chose you. You mean to save me from hell? Of course. But there's so much more. He chose you in Christ for friendship, for fellowship, for relationship, for companionship. You see, God has called you to be his constant companion for all eternity. 
In verse 21, it says, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Listen carefully. Do you know why they say no, but we will serve the Lord? Because remember what Joshua said? I have a sneaking suspicion you're not going to serve the Lord. Here for the third time. No, we will serve the Lord. Verse 22, so Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen the Lord for yourself to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Over and over again, I've reminded you of what a witness is. Italian people aren't fond of witnesses. No witnesses. I asked my dad why he didn't like Jehovah's Witness. He goes, I don't like any witness. There Three times the people assured Joshua, we're going to serve the Lord, verse 16, verse 21, verse 24. I want you to just, just, just think about this for a moment. Joshua knows what you know. Let me put it another way. Do the lips always say what's really, truly in the heart? I'll repeat it. Do the lips always say what's in the heart? No. no. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But is it possible for a person to speak and not really believe, not really feel, not really... They're putting on an act. The Bible does say that out of the heart, the mouth speaks... It's clear and it's true that every once in a while, eventually, what a person says, it's going to reveal something about them. But Joshua knows that the lips may speak, but it isn't always true of what's in the heart. And he's reminding them, you've said what you've said. There's going to come a time when you will have to testify. And again, remember what a witness is. Number one, a witness has a knowledge of the facts. Number two, a witness has to have a reputation for honesty. Number three, a witness has to be willing to testify. And so now they're going to find ways to remember. Look what it says in verse 25, a summary. So, so think about this. Summary, verses 2 through 13. Service, 14 through 24. Symbol, in, in verse 27. In verse 25, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Moses made a covenant with the people. Now Joshua makes a covenant with the people. God made covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. And Joshua then makes a covenant with this generation. You know what this tells me? Each generation has to once again renew the vow and renew the covenant. Your children and your grandchildren can't be Christians on your behalf. You know, my father was a Christian and his father was a Christian. Or you might even say, my father was a flaming, pagan, heathen, sinner, dog, disconnected from God. Just because that's who they are, that doesn't mean you have to be. And just because they were something, that doesn't mean you have to be something. But just because they were a Christian doesn't mean you automatically get to be a Christian. You have to love God for yourself. You have to know him for yourself. You have to believe in him yourself. In verse 26 it says, Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone. 
and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. In other words, remember at Shechem? There's Jacob's well and there's Jacob's altar. And there's a place where, where a sanctuary has been set aside. Joshua codifies. That means he writes down. He makes a permanent record of the agreement. He writes the words in the book of the law. That means he attaches it to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then he takes the book that we've just studied from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 24. 24, and he's going to attach it to this book, and he's going to go, future generations are going to read about the promise that you made, and God is going to hold you accountable for what you said. He then sets up a stone to remind them of their vows. This is like the stones that were set up when they crossed the River Jordan. Again, remember, it was to serve as a memorial. Why does God do that? It's because we're forgetful people. I'm a forgetful person. My wife will say, take out the trash. And I forget. Please put your socks in the hamper. I forgot. Unacceptable. You have to remember. What do I have to do to get you to comply? And so in the New Testament, we're given reminders. We're given the Lord's Supper. Once a month, we have communion. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The, the ordinance of baptism, the ordinance of communion was to serve as a reminder of what God has done in our life, how Jesus has saved us and, and, and he continues to save us. We're saved in the past from the penalty of sin. We're saved in the present from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And so even with reminders in the years to come, Israel would soon forget. By the way, if you fast forward to the book of Judges and you go all the way to the last chapter of Judges, to the last verse in the book of Judges, it says, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it becomes a testimony that for whatever reason, they didn't read what Moses said and they didn't read what Joshua said and they decided I'm going to do what I want to do. In verse 27, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that there will come a time. Remember when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and the religious leaders said to Jesus, Stop Telling the, you know, the people keep shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Make them shut up. And Jesus said, if they didn't speak, the rocks themselves would speak and they would cry out. I suspect that there will come a day in a great judgment where Jesus will cause the rock at Shechem to testify to the promise that was made. And there are witnesses who will testify to the promises that you have made. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Look what it says in verse 29. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. 
being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of the inheritance at Timnath, Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. The book of Joshua concludes with this marvelous testimony. Israel serves the Lord in the days of Joshua. This is the testimony of godly leadership. The people that you're entrusted to, they serve the Lord. This is a pastor's great dream, that the people will serve the Lord. This is a father and a mother's great dream for their children. My children, John wrote, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk with the Lord. I have no greater joy than to know that my son Miguel is serving the Lord in, with all of his mind in the army. My, my son Anthony is serving the Lord as a pastor in Buffalo. My son Jonathan serving the Lord with all of his heart. Their wives serving the Lord. Their children serving the Lord. What a marvelous testimony. The people continued to serve the Lord even after Joshua died. Wiersbe says, the tomb of Joshua was another reminder to Israel of the power of God, the mercy of the Lord. It is right for God's people to remember godly leaders and to imitate their faith according to Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. And in verse 32 it says, the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem. Remember, this is the place where he was betrayed and sold into slavery. In the plot of the ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. They buried him in a hill belonging to Phinehas, his son, which was given in the mountains of Ephraim. Three burials are recorded in the verses. Joshua, Joseph, Eleazar. Joseph's brothers promised to bury his remains in Canaan. Genesis chapter 50 verse 25. In Wiersbe's outlines it says, so the Jews had carried his coffin out of Egypt, Exodus 13, 19. This is a picture of our future resurrection. For just as Joseph's body was redeemed from Egypt, so our bodies will one day not only rest in their rightful home, but be transformed like the body of Christ, of Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20 and 21. It's easy to believe that Joseph's grave would be a reminder also to the people of the faithfulness of God. Joseph had been used to keep the nation alive in famine. He had been faithful to the Lord, even among the heathen of Egypt, unquote. All three burials are in Joseph's territory. In other words, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph who inherited the land. And Joseph was buried in the place that was provided for him. What do all three have in common? They all served the Lord and their people. Both Joseph and jo Joshua led the people, delivered the people from their enemies. But also remember Eleazar. He was a deliverer. In what way? In what way was Eleazar a deliverer? Remember in chapter 23 when we were looking at the cities of refuge? What happened in the cities of refuge when the high priest died? Everybody was set free. They no longer had to bear the blame and the burden of, the con of their sin. Remember, this was the unintentional sin. They didn't kill somebody on purpose. It was an accident. But when the high priest died, they were set free. 
it all becomes a type and a picture of Jesus setting you free. I've wrote a note to myself. God buries his servants, but the work continues. One day, I'll give my last message. One day, I'll give a final word. I hope on that day, people will remember the past of what God has done, that they'll remember the present of what God is doing, and they'll remind each other about what God will continue to do. So have you heard the voice of the Lord? Will you remember God's work of salvation in your life? Will you, when you are struggling and in a difficult situation, will you remind yourself of what God has done? Have you made the decision to follow the Lord? If you have, then remember the warnings. No turning back. No turning back. God says, remember my promises. And I say, you remember your promises to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, what a wonderful book. What an amazing story. What an incredible witness. Lord, in this book, you prepared your people to enter the land. You gave them the ability to conquer the land. And then you gave them their inheritance. Lord, we pray that we would not hesitate to enter into fellowship and friendship and relationship with Jesus. That we would allow Jesus to do the work of conquering our enemies. And that we would allow Jesus to provide for us the inheritance which he has promised, even himself. In Jesus' name, amen.